You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 251 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are joined by Daniel Pinchbeck, the author of such books as Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism and How Soon is Now, among many others. Here's Daniel. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So for the listeners who might not know who you are, can you talk a bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, but I'm a writer. I've written a number of books. My first book came out in 2002. It was called Breaking Open the Head, and it was about uh, psychedelic shamanism. So uh, I visited uh, indigenous community cultures in uh, Gabon and Africa and in uh, the Amazon Ecuador. I visited the Sequoia. And uh, I visited the Mazatec Indians in Mexico, and I kind of looked at the history of the modern world's kind of um, repression of uh, plant, visionary plant knowledge and the visionary experience in general, and uh, tried to understand the, you know, what, what the value of these experiences could be for the modern worlds. And um, yeah, that book came out kind of before the current psychedelic renaissance, and I think particularly in the U.S., uh, it helped kind of reframe uh, the cultural conversation around psychedelics and, and sort of helped provide a new opening um, for them, which then, you know, has, has grown and grown since then. Uh, and then I wrote a second book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, that was looking at the uh, sort of spiritual traditions of indigenous cultures, in particular their prophetic uh, knowledge uh, systems, uh, including the Mayan calendar, the Hopi prophecies, and I was sort of trying to understand uh, this idea of prophecy in relationship to these uh, cultures. And then also looking at, you know, prophecies of uh, monotheisms, like the Geo-Christian idea of the apocalypse, uh, looking at thinkers like Carl Jung and Heidegger and Rudolf Steiner and uh, how their work maybe fit into um, a kind of way to recontextualize uh, this type of indigenous knowledge for our time. Uh, then, uh, I started a company called, uh, Evolver that had a web magazine, Reality Sandwich, uh, and, um, was involved with that for a while, made a documentary. The documentary was made about me and my work called 2012 Time for Change. Um, it was very easy at that time to misinterpret what I was saying, which a lot of the mainstream media did, and that, you know, there was a sort of doomsday idea around 2012, the end of the Mayan calendar, but it really, that was really never what I was saying. I was saying it was like an opportunity or an invitation for the modern world to kind of uh, reintegrate uh, these like lost aspects of indigenous knowledge and kind of a deeper understanding of the psyche and so on. Uh, so yeah, then finally in 2017, I published a, a book, How Soon Is Now, which tried to look at the ecological crisis we're facing on a planetary level as a kind of a rite of passage or initiation for humanity that would trigger an evolutionary shift in human consciousness uh, if we wanted to avoid uh, our extinction. Uh, that book also looked at, uh, not only did it look at it from a sort of archetypal, you know, consciousness evolution lens, but I also talked specifically about the types of system changes we would have to make in our technical systems and our social and economic systems to uh, avert the worst aspects of, uh, you know, ecological tragedy. 
Uh, most recently, I published a book, uh, When Plants Dream, that I wrote with a young woman anthropologist, Sophia Rocklin, which is looking at the whole phenomenon of ayahuasca's uh, global growth and how uh, it's moving around the world. And then we also look at its history and its origin, all the research that's being done on it, what we're learning about its use for um, you know, medicine, for, for psychology, uh, religious uh, uses of it, and so on. Um, and then I also published a short uh, essay book called The Occult Control System, which is considering what's happening with kind of UFOs and aliens and uh, the sort of mainstream media's release of information and how to sort of contextualize that whole phenomenon, also looking at the alien abduction phenomenon and crop circles and looking at that in the, um, through the lens of like esoteric and occult cosmologies like uh, Rudolf Steiner's work and, uh, and so on. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I'm starting slowly, slowly launching a new magazine called Liminal, uh, liminal.news, uh, where I hope we can bring a lot of esoteric topics up to a deeper level of, of intellectual and philosophical scrutiny. In your first book, you write uh, a great deal about iboga. Uh, I mean, uh, there are many instances where you could discover or stumble upon ayahuasca, even back then when you wrote that book. But iboga was more in the dark, at least for the West. How did you come across iboga? I was living in the East Village, and there was an anarchist bookstore on Avenue B and 3rd Street, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. And I was just hanging out there one day, uh, and they had a little section on drugs, and I found this weird book called The, the Boga Project. It was this big compendium of all this information about Boga by this group that had discovered in the 60s, sort of accidentally, it was a young, young heroin addict, Howard Lotsoff, and he had ordered a Boga looking for a new high, by uh, mail, and he got a package of it, and when he took it, um, he discovered that um, his addiction was cured, uh, that he had no more desire for heroin, no withdrawal symptoms, it was just gone. And so this led him on a lifelong quest to popularize iboga and you know bring it, bring it to the modern world as an addiction treatment. So that was very fascinating to me, and um, you know, I, I, I wanted to try it, I'd already been trying uh, you know, I'd sort of been rediscovering mushrooms and LSD and so on, and had been, you know, looking into salvia, divinora, and ayahuasca, and uh, I was able to convince a um, American uh, hip hop magazine called Vibe to send me to Gabon to go through the um, initiation experience with the Bwini. Uh So that's how that happened. What? Why do you think that? I. I mean, there are many clinics with the extract ibogaine and many addicts are being healed by it but iboga has never become a spiritual tool for the west as much as ayahuasca why do you think that is well i mean i think some of it is geographical i mean gabon is a very remote region you know it's not as easy to get there i mean you know south america is obviously much more closely connected to north america and there's a lot more you know trade happening and so on so gabon was kind of like a very uh, unknown territory. And the other issue now that there has been greater and greater interest in Iboga is a, a supply issue. Uh, in fact, there's, uh, you know, what I, what I understand is that there's a danger of uh, Iboga going extinct at this point. It only really grows in a very small region. And as more and more people from the, from the you know, modern world seek it out, it's threatening the uh, supplies. It doesn't grow very quickly. Uh, so now there are some uh, botanists and, uh, you know, 
people who are trying to learn how to grow it in other regions like Costa Rica and so on, or stimulate its growth through biotechnological means. But so far, I don't think there's been great success. So, so there's a very limited supply of it, unfortunately. When you go through ayahuasca ceremony or a, an aboga ceremony, uh, what do you think is the biggest difference in in uh, in the healing or the experience? Uh, yeah, there are like, um, I mean, they're very different kind of frequencies in a way. Like uh, ayahuasca is more kind of like dreamlike and playful. I- Iboga seems to have a much more direct uh, intentionality. Uh, ay- ayahuasca, many people characterize, uh, I mean, you know, not everybody believes in spirits, but many people characterize the kind of uh, energetic or the entity that they encounter through ayahuasca as a feminine being, almost like a, like a female spirit or, or deity. Iboga has a very masculine quality, and you'll often he- see masculine presence or hear a masculine voice, and um, it, it's uh, much more direct in terms of its psychological uh, kind of uh, direct, you know, it, it'll, it'll, it'll even just, the second time I did it, uh, it, it was even just speaking to me directly, I could ask questions, or my, my friend had the same experience, and we would get, it has a kind of uh, acerbic uh, sense of humor also, uh, in the way it relates to you, uh, but it's very, very, almost like psychoanalytic and very, very precise, uh, more, more so than ayahuasca. It, it also lasts a lot longer, and it has uh, the the, uh, the Ganga, the shamans in, in, in Gabon, kind of understand the different uh, sequence that you're likely to go through uh, with uh, Iboga. There's like several different, very distinct phases of the experience. I went to Gabon myself and did Iboga, and I don't know if everybody else experienced this but i sent or my experience was that uh, the the visions on the iboga looked uh, realistic whereas on the ayahuasca it was more sci-fi uh, i mean i saw real people or real animals uh, and in the ayahuasca it was more you know magical fantasy land kind of thing that's interesting yeah i i, I could see that i mean also obviously you know, with all these substances, everybody's experience is very individual and different. When uh, you wrote your book 2012, it was way before 2012, but now looking back when 2012 has passed, and is there anything you could add to it in when you have hindsight? I mean, the crazy thing is, is that I still really, really stand by that book and, and feel that it's... Um, I think the title, in retrospect, you know, helped the book get popularity at the time, but is now a little bit unfortunate, as um, you know, people think it's about something in the past. But um, yeah, I think that um, you know, somewhere around you know, 2012, 20, you know, to 2013, there, there's been some type of you know shift in our collective consciousness, and the shift is deepening. And um, you know, it it could be. I mean. Um, I guess one thing I would add to it is I've now spoken to some uh, shaman from the Nawadal tradition, this guy Sergio Magana, who's written a book called The Age of the Sick Sun. And also I've spoken to uh, Mayan elders who kind of talk about the same thing. They talk about uh, 2012 to 2021 as the transition from the uh, last age or from the fifth sun to the sixth sun. And according to uh, Sergio Magana, who's relating the information from his uh, Nawadal uh, lineage, uh, this transition is from what they call a sun of light to a sun of darkness. And I know that sounds kind of uh, frightening, uh, 
it may, it may be for, for, for many people, but the kind of the ideas that we're moving from a period when uh, waking, clarity, rational, consciousness, duality were the prevailing kind of uh, perspectives to a kind of slightly different uh, sort of epoch of consciousness that's more uh, subtly psychic, uh, that's more kind of dreamlike. And uh, this poses a whole new set of uh, quandaries and problems and opportunities for us individually and also collectively. This psychedelic renaissance uh, that people call it, um, do you think, because the first one in the 60s, the Summer of Love and all that, it had it like a definite ending, but this one has been lasting for a longer time. Do you think it will just keep spiraling forward? Uh, I do think so. I mean, I think that the... Um, the, uh, the, the 60s were like the first stage of a kind of initiatory process uh, that involved um, kind of opening to uh, a, a new levels of uh, information and uh, a new understanding of the psyche. But it was almost like too much, too high a voltage for that time. You know, so if you look at like even like the most sophisticated kind of uh, people who were exploring psychedelics, you know, it was very new for them, like Timothy Leary you know, who became like the public advocate for psychedelics. He only had his first trip in the early 60s when he was already like 40 and had come from an alcoholic background. And, you know, so two or three years into his first, you know, understanding, he was suddenly the go-to guy for the whole culture. And so, yeah, we didn't have elders in our society who understood these types of uh, experiences. And now we do, since the 60s, we have many, many people who've, where it can hold hold the space and, and hold the container, and um, you know, so, so it's allowed for many many more people now, you know, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to you know begin to have a, a deeper relationship to these types of experience and the uh, different mind body states and forms of consciousness that they uh, that they bring about. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a this is not just a, a trend that's going to be phased out. This is you know a permanent shift in uh, human society and will actually become much more, uh, much deeper uh, over the next uh, years. You've written a, a bit about, uh, in your books, about Rudolf Steiner. Would you say his uh, his uh, ideas are still relevant today? Uh, I, I think that he's extremely fascinating and extremely relevant, uh, but also quite hard to uh, assimilate because, um, yeah, I mean, it's, well, first of all, you know, I mean, in early 20th century, there were a number of remarkable figures who were advancing, let's say, the Western occult tradition, uh, like Dion Fortune or Aleister Crowley or Gurdjieff and so on. But of all these figures, I think Steiner is the most extraordinary, uh, partly because not only did he have these incredible, you know, visionary, uh, you know, ideas that he expressed and seems like he was able to kind of enter into these all these visionary states and, and see the Akashic records and so on. But he was also able to um, take his visionary ideas and uh, sort of uh, turn them into uh, usable uh, infrastructures and systems. So, for instance, he created the Waldorf school system or biodynamic farming and was also very instrumental in homeopathy and so on. So, you know, it wasn't just that he was kind of an occult visionary, he, he was also somebody who really was able to create humane uh, new uh, institutions and, and ways of doing things, and techniques and so on. 
Yeah, the Waldorf school are quite popular, uh, at least where where I am. Um, it's strange that uh, the normal public school doesn't implement more of those kind of ideas where the individual is, uh, you, you teach them to think for themselves more or integrate more with your environment. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the education system, you know, of, of modern industrial society at this point is pretty much a disaster. Uh, it was really designed for, you know, this age of uh, industrialization. And, and, you know, really the most, the you know, most important thing that schools are teaching, um, you know, kids and, you know, up, from, up from childhood to adulthood is how to be as slavishly obedient to authority and to, uh, you know, accept uh, kind of like irrational hierarchies, you know. Uh, so that they're then prone, you know, ready to be absorbed into kind of hierarchical, political, and corporate structures without challenging them at their base. Uh, you know, unfortunately, this type of education is is radically, uh, you know, sort of uh, inappropriate for a situation where those systems and structures that are our legacy institutions are responsible, you know, not only for you know military uh, disasters but also for an ecological catastrophe that threatens the future of all life on earth. You know, so that in itself should make us aware that these educational systems have, uh, have failed us on the deepest level. And yeah, we would, we would need a new approach to education. That's really about, uh, you know, teaching people to become, uh, questioners of authority and to be responsible, you know, self-sovereign responsible, uh, for themselves at every level. Virtual reality and augmented reality and life, online it's all getting bigger and bigger but at the same time uh, there's also this huge community that are you know more going back to the roots with the psychedelic renaissance or indigenous um, culture and uh, trying to uh, work with like permaculture and all it's like two contradictory things happening at the same time and both are a lot uh, they're both growing a lot um what are your thoughts on that? Do you think they will somehow... Because I always think about what Terence McKenna said, where he said he wants to live in the Garden of Eden, you know, in in the rainforest. And then when he needs to, he can just uh, put on his virtual headset and then go to the office, you know. Well, I, I don't think I don't think they're um, inherently contradictory. I mean, I, I mean, it's first of all, it's a big question at the moment whether we're going to be able to uh, avoid our extinction because at the moment we're definitely on a, on a rapid path towards extinction. And, you know, there are a number of scientists and, uh, you know, people who've been looking at the data who think that it may already be kind of too late, uh, which is a very sobering uh, thing and something that when you really integrate it, you know, you have to really, you know, think about how that changes, you know, your whole perspective on culture and time and meaning and so on. But, um, you know, if, if that's not the case and we're able to get through this, um, really uh, frightening cul-de-sac that we've created, uh, then I think the, the way to do that is going to be through a um, sort of integration of, uh, you know, high technologies and uh, ancient practices. And, um, you know, some of these type technologies could be extremely helpful. I mean, for instance, let's say we go through a period where people really literally cannot travel anymore. You know, they can't use fossil fuels and we don't have planes that are running on, uh, you know, algae fuel or, you know, waste plastics. I mean, we have a little bit, but, you know, the, we have to actually get people to not travel, uh, you know, anywhere near their, uh, about their traveling now. 
well, maybe virtual reality is a way that they can have diverse experiences of other cultures and so on. Uh, augmented reality can be used in interesting ways. I mean, I, uh, I have friends in New York who are building a company where you could use augmented reality for farming. So you put on these goggles and you can see like what the plants are needing in terms of nutrients or water. You know, one problem we're going to have is that people are going to have to be growing their own food again in, in large quantities. And unfortunately, that takes that's a skill that's very subtle and takes many, many years of, of care to, to learn. And so we're all totally uneducated for the most part now in, in, in doing that. So um, so what option would be, you know, having uh, tools, uh, technological tools that allow us to, uh, you know, retrain our uh, perceptions and our capacities uh, in, in, a, in a very rapid way. The climate change deniers, uh, what always surprises me about them is that even if human pollution doesn't create any problems for the world, uh, should you still like pollute? I mean, like I, I, if I go walk in the forest and I throw some my garbage on the ground, it might not have a big effect on the forest, but you know, you, you just don't do it. You know, <laughs> it's that, that's what always surprises me that it doesn't really matter if it's climate change or not. We shouldn't pollute regardless. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's pollution. I mean, I mean the climate change denying, you know, has to do with, um, you know, a huge amount of money that, um, has been, you know, put into disinformation. It's a super sophisticated, uh, techniques of, uh, creating dissent, and fomenting, uh, you know, counter counter ideas. Uh, I mean, it's beginning to reach the point of ludicrousness, but a good book on this whole subject is by this uh, New Yorker writer, Jane Mayer, called Dark Money, where she looked at how a group of, uh, you know, libertarian fossil fuel billionaires started to uh, work together in the 60s to figure out how you could uh, shift society back on the path that they wanted, which was more of a... Uh, you know, kind of uh, autocratic, uh, libertarian uh, control system. And, um, yeah, they put really billions into this. And, um, you know, it's hyper sophisticated. I think what we're seeing in the U.S. is really the success of uh, many decades long uh, program that was a study in uh, mind control, uh, deception, how to distort people's uh, capacity to reason and so on. So unfortunately, that's, uh, that, 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 that's, that's a huge problem we're facing as a species right now. I thought that speech Donald Trump gave where he said he was going to produce really clean coal was quite funny. That That's even not really possible to make clean coal. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not really finding. I mean, I'm not really finding him funny right now. I'm finding him like really super frightening and ghastly. Uh, but at the moment, we have a constitutional crisis in the U.S., and um, you know, it's quite possible that even though he's obviously committed, you know, a tremendous number of uh, impeachable offenses, um, he may he may still maintain his power, uh, and um, it's a threat not only to the U.S. but to the whole. A global system, which we see more and more political destabilization, more and more supporting of uh, you know dictatorships, and also uh, suicidal policies in relationship to the uh, ecosystems. Yeah, I meant more funny in like ridiculous or negative way, of course. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing is is you know if you have if you have a dark sense of humor, it definitely tickles that funny bone. Why do you think? Because it's not only in the United States, in Brazil, in many countries in Europe. Uh, there's been a lot of these like very very right wing leaders or or political parties that are taking power, uh, and it's like closing in on a hundred years since uh, 
the right wing of Europe, you know, like, uh, is it like, like history repeats itself? It's a bit worrying in a sense. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, I actually think a lot of... At the same, sorry, at the same time as we're having this like psychedelic, I mean, this, it's, it's so contradictory in a sense. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, <laughs> uh, with uh, the the ecological crisis, and al- and also the sense that uh, resources are more and more uh, getting depleted, and more and our system, our, our whole situation is more and more fragile. I think there people feel that intuitively. There's like a felt sense, and then also um, another issue is the neoliberal elites who were controlling. Western societies uh, in the 60s uh, through recently uh, really, really failed. They got they got trapped in their self-enclosed bubbles of smug entitlement, and they really failed to see that a lot of their policies were destructive to you know middle class people and working class people. So we've seen a, a huge amount of extraction of capital to the top of the pyramid, and um, yeah. So so you know in 1960. Um, you know, one one worker running a family of four could take care of the whole family without debt, and they would have a car and a home. You know, now you have like you know, both both people working, and yet they're still in debt, and they can't support it. Supply, you know, they can't they can barely survive, and so on. And they're they're very angry. And you know, when you have the the sort of smug entitlement of the neoliberal political leaders saying, "Oh, look how things are getting better under our policies," and this is absolutely not the case. Uh, that that leads people to reject uh, that that neoliberal consensus and to seek for anything outside of that. And uh, you know, in some ways, like for instance, Trumpism is uh, doing some things that you know many ordinary people actually support. Many people feel that in the U.S. that um, you know the they allowed too much unrestricted immigration that was you know very good for once again the neoliberal ruling class because it allowed them to have cheap labor. Uh, you know that the, uh, tar- the the free trade also destroyed uh, the possibilities of the working class in, in these societies. So there's there's a very deep anger in acting out uh, on the part of the, uh, the, the the working classes and, and the lower middle classes who feel you know fucked over by the system. And on top of that, I, as I say, is there's uncon- subconscious uh, awareness that uh, things are about to get really really heavy. Uh, and, you know, so you see like the refugee crisis from Syria, you know, my understanding is that has a climate change element that there was a lot of drought that was leading to these, uh, increasing wars and so on. And, uh, you know, if we look at the future, you know, you look at a country like, let's say Bangladesh, which is like 130 million people living at a zero five meters above sea level. Um, you know, their, their groundwater is going to get polluted as the ocean rises, you know, India is building a war to keep them out. Where are those 130 million people going to go? You know, this kind of stuff is going to be happening all around the world. So the the first reaction on the part of, of you know, the masses is going to be, you know, regression towards uh, authoritarianism. And uh, ultimately, though, I don't think that these authoritarian systems are going to be able to, you know, a- answer the deep needs of the situation and collapse will become the likely, uh, you know, kind of result. Uh, that could also lead to even d- darker, deeper ecological breakdown, as we're seeing in Brazil with the destruction, systemic destruction of the Amazon there. It could also be that if you look at it from how nature works, that maybe maybe if, you know, the forest burns naturally, of course, uh, it grows better later. So maybe, because I've been thinking about this for a while that maybe it's horrible for the people who are alive now but maybe if 
things go really bad, maybe it will actually make it better in a few generations. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it depends what scale of time you're looking at. I mean, uh, you know, many people, even very sophisticated financial analysts, are now saying that as we see these rapid changes in the climate, um, you know, we could be two to three years away from major food scarcity due to drought. And, uh, you know, also the collapse of the global insect population. Uh, so, you know, that would lead to, you know, massive civil unrest, which would lead to refugee crises everywhere that would lead to wars, you know, that would lead to depopulation and so on. So, yeah, I mean, from the perspective of, you know, 100,000 or a million years, you know, maybe the forest will be fine. But, uh, you know, in the short span of our lives and our children's lives, uh, things may get very, very uh, unpleasant. I've been thinking about getting a beehive because I, I live in a house uh, with a garden. Uh, I don't know how much one beehive will do, but that's one more at least. <laughs> yeah, get a, get a beehive. What a great idea. Mainstream science can always reject the concept that these uh, psychedelic plants like ayahuasca are intelligent or they communicate. Uh, they can always say it's just in your mind. But there's been more and more uh, discoveries regarding the fact that plants communicate and they move around and they do strategies and I imagine there will be more of those discoveries um, do you have anything do you know anything about that or any thoughts um, yeah I mean you know I, I think that you know plants are very very sophisticated creatures that have been on this planet for you know way way longer than we have and yeah they've, they've learned you know they've, they've developed through evolution all these incredibly complex symbiotic systems and um, you know whether we want to think that they're you know kind of quote-unquote intelligent you know the way we are or not um, you know there's uh, you know profound uh, complexity and symbiosis happening in the natural systems that our artificial systems really aren't up to imitating at this point and probably you know won't be uh, you know for a very long time if ever um, and um, in terms of the psychedelics like if we look at the uh, you know, uh, research that's being done now, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's, it's very, very convincing on a number of levels. You know, for instance, the uh, MDMA work with post-traumatic stress disorder, with the veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan wars in the U.S., which is having a more than 60% cure rate after three sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And then you have, um, you know, the studies at the Imperial College in London where they've been doing brain scans of people at high dose uh, LSD and psilocybin, and they're able to see how these various dormant areas of the brain activate and light up, and these new patterns of connectivity are formed through these different, you know, across these different areas of the brain. And that would really support anecdotally uh, the, the evidence that we have that psychedelics can be very, very useful for creative thinking, for creative problem solving, for creativity, for art, you know, as we saw in the 60s uh, with uh, the great music of the 60s and so on, or as we saw in the pioneers of the internet, who were most of whom were exploring psychedelics for creative purposes. So, you know, the, the evidence is becoming incontrovertible that these, are, these can be used uh, very effectively as tools for healing and also for creative thought and problem solving. And that's just becoming more and more clear. I don't have any personal experience with MDMA, but I've, I've read, of course, that it's very good for PTSD. But when you look at like how dangerous, uh, none of the psychedelics cause a lot of deaths, really. It's very, I mean, it's not even worth mentioning so few. But MDMA has quite a lot. Has that got to do with the f way people use them more in a party setting that it 
can create problems where because when they use it with the PTSD, it's safe, you know. Yeah, well, once again, I mean, the, the deaths from MDMA compared to the deaths from you know alcohol consumption or car accidents caused by alcohol, caused by alcohol or heroin or speed or cocaine is like minuscule. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, you can look up all the evidence on MDMA. I mean, if people are you know super dehydrated and dancing all the time, but don't take care of themselves, you know, they they can they can they can they can suffer. Uh, consequences for that. Uh, I mean, there are also subtler issues with MDMA. So, for instance, there's studies that suggest it has a negative effect on long-term memory. Uh, but you know, that also may be a, you know of overuse, you know, due to overuse. So, you know, it's probably not something that you would want to bomb yourself with, you know, daily or weekly. But I think you know, people take it a few times a year in safe settings. Uh, it can be highly beneficial. One weekend, because I, I like to do that, those kind of things, but one weekend I calculated that more people in the last hundred years have died from tripping than all psychedelics combined. Died from which? Tripping. I mean, like, sorry, that was, and it's not a pun. I mean, like falling over, like tripping on the street or... Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, falling is obviously one of the biggest, you know, causes of death, particularly for old people, unfortunately, but yeah. Oh, I didn't realize the word tripping got confused. <laughs> Uh, slipping on a banana peel, maybe. Um, so your most recent book, uh, can you talk a bit about what that was? You mentioned it earlier. Yeah, the most recent book is called When Plants Dream. And we're looking at uh, the uh, history uh, of ayahuasca. It's kind of like a, almost like a biography of ayahuasca, like where it came from, what do we know about its origins, the myths around it, how the uh, you know modern, modern industrial societies discovered it. Uh, the early interactions between, like, you know, rubber tappers and indigenous cultures, anthropologists and their study of it, and then how it's been moving around the world, the impact it has on people's uh, worldviews and belief systems, even how it changes their career goals and investment strategies and so on. And then we also think a little bit about, you know, what a future could look like where ayahuasca was more integrated into, into modern industrial civilization. What I find interesting is I, I was watching, I was at that ayahuasca conference in Spain and Jeremy Narbury was speaking and he was talking about how the uh, the ayahuasca used by only indigenous people or the people, indigenous people who might not have so many Westerners has more ayahuasca and less the, of the DMT. And the, uh, the more you look at the ayahuasca in the in the retreats there's more DMT and then if you go even further away from the Amazon into the Europe and the US there's even more DMT so it seems like the indigenous are more focused on the actual ayahuasca which uh, the vine that uh, contains other healing properties. Well we kind of fetishize uh, the visionary experience uh, as quote-unquote spiritual so, you know, we kind of feel like, oh, you're not really going to have the effect of it unless you, like, see, like, all these crazy visions and so on. And, um, yeah, for, for, you know, people in the Amazon who, you know, use, use this organically, you know, it's also just a healing tool, uh, getting rid of parasites and, and so on. So, um, yeah, I mean, our, 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 our emphasis, you know, might may, may be pretty different. I can't say for sure, but I also got the impression from listening to him that uh, a lot of the insights you might get about your life is actually not the DMT part, it's the ayahuasca part, according to what he said anyway. Uh, and uh, considering the fact that the actual vine ayahuasca is not usually illegal anywhere, it, it could be a good idea to 
I mean, you could use that if it works good. I don't know, but uh, it wouldn't have a legal problem anyway. Yeah, but it's not very pleasant, honestly. It's it's uh, you, you get all the the misery and the nausea without the uh, you know the fun of the the visions. Oh yeah, I have I never tried. Have you tried ayahuasca only? I mean, without DMT. Uh, I mean, I've tried you know potions that definitely had way more of the ayahuasca and way less of the DMT. So, what uh, is in store for you in the near future? Do you have anything you want to make people aware of? Um, well, let's see. I mean, I, I'm starting this magazine, uh, Liminal.News, just get, just really slowly. And um, then I wrote a play, actually, this summer, and I'm exploring a little bit more dramatic writing, maybe a screenplay. And, um, yeah, kind of, uh, I mean, you know, one thing that I really want to investigate in the magazine is um, kind of uh, occultism and uh, mind power. Uh, you know, kind of how these have been made use of in the last uh, years by the right wing. Uh, and e even Trump himself uh, comes out of it in a way like this sort of positive uh, thinking uh, background where he, his, his preacher uh, when he was young was this guy Norman Vincent Peale who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, which is basically this idea of using, you know, will and attention to overcome, you know, anything and bring about the desire that you want. So it's almost interesting to think about Trump as a kind of a cultist. And then in the uh, you know, run up to the election, there was uh, this whole kind of scenario on the Internet with these trolls on 4chan who seemed to have like practiced kind of an inadvertent form of chaos magic uh, and, and you know, connecting to kind of Egyptian deities and so on. So, yeah, I'm fascinated to see if this is like a real avenue for the future that maybe we need to develop uh, occult mind practices, uh, technologies that can help us uh, kind of deal with the, uh, you know, dangerous and chaotic circumstances that are facing us now. And uh, do you have any website or anything you could recommend people to go to, apart from the one you mentioned? Yeah, I have a website, which is pitchback.io. Uh, I'm also active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter a bit under my name. And then, as I said, this one called liminal.news, uh, howsoonisnow.info uh, has information about uh, my book from 2717. Uh, and then there's I have my own podcast, How Soon Is Now, which is uh, How Soon Is Now. Uh, it's on, anyway, if they look it up, they'll find it on Libsyn. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a, have a great day. I appreciate that you listen to this podcast. I often ask myself if this podcast even exists if no one is listening. And as far as I know, people are. So thank you for doing that. If you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. A link can also be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. If you become a Patreon, you'll get access to new episodes before everyone else, as well as access to a bunch of other rants, recordings, deleted material and behind the scenes. I call this place in the digital space the Round Table of the Divine Mystery. So please join us, patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Go to pinchbeck.io to check out more of Daniel's work. Here's the song for Eva from Nameless Archives Album 1. 
you can check them out over at namelessarchive.com. I'll see you all next week. Take care and freedom is in the mind. My mother fell into debt because of me. And she worked so hard and still sometimes she couldn't even afford to eat. She wanted me to feel and be free. She wanted nothing else from me. And they tried so hard to break her and make me lose my integrity. They tried to kick us out. They tried to take a lot of stuff away and fuck us up. But you know what? They failed. And in school they tried to calm me down They tried to make me weak And tie me, gag me, turn me into a fucking sheep But I just forever speak And they tried to still But unlike them I have a will A will to be strong and it's for that will She gave me that I give her this song Cause I choose not to perform I choose a free mind and a free soul I choose to go against the norm Because the norm is all wrong So let me dictate my hate For this diaphylactic lacking estate Where that perspective doesn't seem To procreate the national debate Just to conjugate with the bifurcate Recriminate only to sedate But it's never too late To sever the traits of Gregory the Great